Game Cool Books, Episode 66, Memory and Wakefulness. This time we're in Chapters 16 and 17 of The Amber Spyglass by Philip Pullman. The Intention Craft First opens with an epigraph from John Milton's Paradise Lost. In Book 1, around line 726, and it describes the uh, architecture of hell from the arched roof pendant by subtle magic, many a row of starry lamps and blazing cressets fed with naphtha and asphaltus yielded light as from a sky. And this is clearly paralleling the uh, workshops of Lord Asriel. This chapter and the next both describe uh, technologies to be the counterparts for the subtle knife we just saw reforged. And this one opens with a reference to the kind of destructive power that uh, Mrs. Coulter's relationship to Lyra actually has. Just as Will broke the knife by thinking of his mother, here Mrs. Coulter describes the loss of Lyra as tearing fibers from her heart or maybe we should be thinking of the way that she separated children from their demons. And clearly, Lord Asriel does not take her seriously here, and I don't think the reader is meant to either. This is a bit of histrionics on her part. But, as we'll see, it doesn't make what she's saying less true. The concern that she shows for Lyra is real, I think, and she's concerned about where Lyra is. Um, Asriel's response is no more convincing, really, when he says that he doesn't care. He's making a show of being preoccupied and scribbling on a piece of paper, but uh, it's hard to miss that that's exactly what the author is also doing in his telling of the story. So there's a lovely little parallel there. And Asriel claims that he can't waste more time with Lyra and that she'll have to deal with the consequences of her waywardness. Of course, the story will spend a great deal more time with Lyra, and the reader probably can't wait to get back with her. And uh, in their conversation, they turn to an argument about Lyra's character, Mrs. Coulter defending her daughter, calling her uh, unique, and... Uh, Asriel attacking her, conceding that she's bright, but not intellectual. Um, he has no real ev evidence to support what he's saying, other than the rhetorical turn, uh, taking what Mrs. Coulter says, calling her brave and generous, and saying that all she's really done is to have tamed Mrs. Coulter herself, drawn her poison, quenched her fire in a drizzle of sentimentality or piety. And he calls Mrs. Coulter the inventor of machines to slice children apart, reminding us of the silver guillotine. But in some of the materials that accompany the book, it's clear that Asriel was actually responsible for the construction of that device, or at least had some of the theoretical idea behind it. And um, he remembers Lyra's dirty fingernails, from their meetings at Jordan College. And uh, clearly her real gift of the obvious one, that is, of reading the alethiometer, is uh, not exactly what turned Mrs. Coulter into a doting mother. It is uh, a kind of truth-telling, however, and so symbolically, maybe, just maybe, that that is who she really is here, and it's not just an act. At any rate... When he offers to gag her, she is more like Lyra than she knew. She spits in Asriel's face, and this is a reference to that moment when Lyra spits in the face of Lord Boreal in his fancy home. Um, she, uh, Miss Coulter critiques Asriel, uh, calls his bluff, and uh, at his calling her bluff and, and going to actually gag her, she concedes uh, that She'll be quiet. Um, she doesn't want to be humiliated. 
but her demon will stay in the silver chain that binds him. The captains come in, Ogunwe, Lord Roke, the angel Zaphania. Um, their appearance is briefly described. Ogunwe has a bandage over some fresh wounds from the battle. Lord Roke, of course, the tiny Galavespian on his blue hawk. And Zephania, a shimmering light accompanies her. Um, Mrs. Coulter has a little wash, comes out, overhears them describing her as courageous as she was just describing her daughter. And this theme of courtesy comes back in as she makes a, a slight on Azriel by saying that Ogunwe and his forces treated her very courteously. Azriel praises their forces for their success in the battle and does not seem too concerned about Lyra having escaped because, after all, Lord Roke is keeping tabs on her by his spies. They're in another world. The girl was in a drugged sleep. The knife was broken, but both are now whole and well. The problem is that Will cannot be compelled as long as he has the knife. They can't very well kill him either because they wouldn't be able to bring it back and use it. The children seem to have a plan. Um, it's unclear what that is, and Azriel doesn't even suggest that they'll ask the alethiometrist. He just gets concerned that the children are safe. Um, their immediate problem is that now that the spies are with Will and Lyra, they don't have anyone watching the magisterium. Mrs. Coulter interjects here that she knows a lot about the magisterium, of course, including that its reader of the alethiometer Fra Pavel is slow and will take some hours to find out where Lyra is. She describes Will as a stubborn child, well used to keeping secrets, but uh, she might be blind to Will's real gifts here, just as Azriel is pretending to be blind to Lyra's. She calls Lyra impossible to read. Um, Ogunwe is worried that Mrs. Coulter is not uh, offering any clear uh, role within this council, and Azriel offers to vouch for her. Lord Roke offers to torture her, but uh, she claims that they should know better than to gain truth from torture. This is ironic given that she tortured the witch to attempt to get the prophecy from her um, back at the start of the subtle knife. And Azriel seems aware of this. He is amused by her barefaced insincerity. Again, he guarantees her presence and claims that she won't have a chance to betray them. Um, and Ogunwe uh, is sure that if she tempts Azriel, he will not resist. Um, this idea of temptation comes out again and again in these chapters. And he doesn't deny that, um, but simply uh, allows Mrs. Coulter the floor briefly to share her knowledge of the magisterium and the way they think, uh, namely that uh, they will kill Lyra, not allow her a chance to be tempted and fall, she briefly recapitulates the prophecy surrounding her daughter and claims that this is what has changed her mind and heart. Now, she is no longer a servant of the church, but against it and against the authority. She calls herself the worst mother in the world. She only cared about her own advancement, forgot her child for years. Then, when the church became interested in dust and children, she remembered her not as an embarrassment, but as a, uh, a, a precious and a dear part of herself. And she saved her three times. She enumerates them this time. Uh, this is something she said to Will, and we had to sort of think about what she meant. But she says it was when the ablation board was set up, she came to Jordan, took her to London. She saved her from Bolvanger, of course, before she was under the knife. And then there's a shift in pronouns here from they to we to I, as she puts herself in the position of the torturer, the uh, abuser of children. But when it was her own child, she 
claims they couldn't conceive the horror of what that felt like. Azriel, of course, did experience that horror precisely when Lyra showed up at his house at Svalbard, but he doesn't say that. They um, discuss the prophecy again uh, as far as Lyra and Eve's uh, echoing, um, doubling, and she claims that they would go back and kill Eve if they could. So there's a historical claim, which I haven't been able to verify, that Calvin himself ordered the deaths of children. Um, I don't know where Pullman's source is for that or if he's inventing it. And she paints a picture of the kind of oblation they would make of the child, Lyra, singing hymns and prayers as they killed her. It's very grotesque. So instead, she saved her daughter by drugging her unconscious. And as she says to Will, she had to do this, um, which again might not be entirely convincing, but she says that as Lyra was asleep and she cared for her, she began to feel a love that she cannot even describe. Azriel's view of this is that she lies barefaced, shameless, in the marrow of her bones. But Ogunway, her initial accuser, is brought around, being only a human after all. She knows how to play on him. And instead, Lord Roke decides that they better keep Mrs. Coulter close, because like a scorpion, her nature uh, is that of a scorpion. He says, you'd better keep them where you can see them. Or rather, the narrator tells us on, on his part. So Azriel finds himself outflanked by his own captains, and Mrs. Coulter displays that mild, virtuous concern for his anger that we can easily see Lyra showing herself. So the plan for this chapter is to discuss a garrison, visit the armory, and then get a report on the angelic forces. And, of course, what's implied here is what they don't know about the magisterium. Mrs. Coulter exchanges a glance with her demon, an idea passing between them like an ambaric spark. Clearly, this is for her to go and be their spy in the magisterium. We get our first mention of the intention craft that they're going to see a test run of. And no explanation is given about it at this point. We're tantalized. The demon is released with a silver key, and Azrael avoids touching the tip of his golden hair, but it's unclear how they could ever have gotten the demon uh, chained up in the first place without touching him. Maybe Mrs. Coulter held him for them. It's hard to imagine, but they descend through the battlements where a cold wind blows. We can see Ogunwe's demon for the first time, a cheetah. Um, the angel is described in terms that recall Rudiscati's meeting with her fellows, whether this was Zephania herself or just angels like her, it's unclear. But again, there's this description of the light that seems to shine on them wherever they are. This angel is older than any living creature Mrs. Coulter has ever seen. She is one who rebelled so long ago and has since been wandering between many worlds, nourishing a hope of destroying the tyranny for this is their last and best hope, and if Azriel's attempt fails, they will all be destroyed, she tells Mrs. Coulter. There's a kind of image of this in the lights that descend, uh, flaring from the walls, the blue hawk flying from one to the next, lit up and then in darkness, and then finally passing out of sight entirely. I suspect that Pullman's view of history is one of a kind of descent with uh, brief uh, interspersed blazes of brilliance. Um, and I think this is a conscious evocation of that idea uh, in their movement down, down to the forges. The next person that Mrs. Coulter speaks with is Ogunwe, and she asks about Lord Roke. Um, she continues to flatter and play upon the African king. He 
tells her about the uh, the world of the Galavespians, where there are humans as well, but most of them serve the church, considering the Galavespians diabolic, while most of the Galavespians have joined Lord Roke and Azriel's insurgency. Mrs. Coulter is shocked uh, by the angel as well, considering them until recently to have been the invention of the Middle Age. But uh, her questions are transparently just those that a spy would ask. Gunway points this out. She confesses that it's so and emphasizes that such transparency would be uh, too obvious for a spy. So clearly she has no intention of deceiving them. At this point, she has no safe place to flee to, even if she could escape. And he says, with perhaps some irony, that he's happy to believe her. So, the angels seem to be very much like the witches, only more so they have alliances and enmities and natures which are difficult for humans to understand. They have been suppressed and rebelled ever since the authority came into being, and this is a shock to Mrs. Coulter. He calls it angelic knowledge, that the authority is not the creator. They are agnostic as to the nature or existence of the creator, but at some point the authority took charge and others have rebelled and struggled against him. This is the last rebellion. Again, uh, that idea of the descent, the blazing lights, um, and the forge at the bottom, right? The last, the greatest, the common cause between beings from all the worlds and angels against the power of the authority. Their intentions come up here. They've come to this world not as colonialists, Agunwe says, but uh, as makers, to build, not to conquer. They don't intend to invade, but if the authority, the clouded mountain, attacks them, they're prepared for a fight. They want no kings, bishops, or priests, no kingdom of heaven, but instead a free republic. And while Mrs. Coulter is prepared to ask more questions, they hurry on to meet up with the others. Now they are deep in the mountain. The sky above is invisible. They are out of breath from their long journey, but they're only partway there. In this hall with glowing crystals to give light, gantries, walkways above, um, brief snatched words between Azrael and his engineers. And there's uh, finally a kind of uh, platform. They come to a electric, that is, ambaric railway. And the brown monkey demon of the engineer here uh, is, uh, is impressed by the golden monkey of Mrs. Coulter. This... Uh, brings us to Lord Roke, the third of the captains, and Mrs. Coulter asks him about his spies working in pairs. She says she was surprised, intrigued by the stalemate, uh, by them nearly defeating her and her demon, and uh, Lord Roke says yes, indeed, because they would not concede the advantage to humans who are a kind of pair with their demon. They uh, work together. Now, of course, the spies are also a pair with their dragonflies, but uh, for whatever reason, the Galavespians only recently uh, hatched their dragonfly eggs. Now, this brings them, okay, to the mountain's heart, a brilliant, sulfur-laden clangor, the heat like a breaking wave, and only Zephania seems unaffected by this onslaught on their senses. The strong implication is that she is used to this from her wandering through hell itself. Um, Ms. Coulter's curiosity remains our lens as we look around and see the incredible hammer blows, hammers the size of houses deal to iron bulks the size of tree trunks. We watch the river of molten metal sluice through, giving off evil smoke, and the folds of metal that are uh, like tissue paper under the machines that beat them into thick layers uh, over and over. 
the wry comment of the narrator is that Jorg Birnesen might have admitted these people knew something about working with metal if he could have seen this forge. But again, for all its power, it doesn't seem like the sort of place that the subtle knife could have been remade if they had captured Will and the pieces of the knife and brought them here. They cross on a walkway of their own over a deeper vault still where miners are picking at the mother rock, uh, gathering ore, um, and that uh, image of the mother deep under the mountain is, of course, paralleled in Mrs. Coulter herself. The um, crystals that give off light are now simply scattered about. Um, there's stalactites there in a natural part of the deepest uh, of, of the mountain's chambers, when suddenly and surprisingly they come out into the night air. So it's cooler here. We have part of the mountain hacked away entirely and a parade ground uh, laid over it. Somewhere in the distance, a iron doors are being hauled open and a machine draped and a tarpaulin uh, hauled out. This is, of course, the intention craft. Our curiosity is at its peak, and Mrs. Coulter uh, cleverly, uh, as if for shelter, again places herself beside King Ogunwe, um, who is presumably entirely within her power at this point. There's a kind of... Um, association with a drilling apparatus. Maybe that's her guess because of the mountain and the forge they've just passed through. But there's also something like a gyropter or even an insect about this machine. It has six legs. It has a cockpit. It has a kind of energetic yet ungainly uh, vitality to it. She can't tell what is structural uh, or how it works. Um, it's lit from behind and, uh, of course, all of what we can see is, is gloom. Um, I think of the uh, Pompidou Center in, in Paris, this kind of, all of the insides are on the outside. Um, but, of course, this is only a prototype. So the um, workers descend with their clipboards and their cables um, as Mrs. Coulter attempts to memorize and make sense of the entire device before her. Asriel himself uh, goes up into it, uh, puts on his harness, his helmet, has his demon hold onto a uh, hoop uh, of some kind, and the machine suddenly moves, um, though maybe it simply becomes poised to move. Um, suddenly it's up in the air, revolving, uh, scanning, hovering, and there's no sound at all of an engine or any sign of how it's doing this. The uh, test they're going to show off involves gyropters. These are King Agunwe's men again uh, on a decoy mission. Uh, as the intention craft is as if anchored in the air, they see some lights uh, far off low in the sky, uh, a smoke trail coming from one of the gyropters. They see the pursuit of a raiding party, a motley assortment of flying machines and living beings. One of them fires on the gyropters, but the shell is intercepted in mid-flight. In a moment, uh, flashes, hisses, strikes somehow at each of the pursuers. The angelic ones disperse in a myriad of particles like diring fireworks, um, just the way that demons have disappeared before and uh, the others are destroyed completely, uh, a great shock, um, and the intention craft then is dislodged, uh, reaches, again, the proving ground. And Mrs. Coulter's demon, I think for the first and maybe only time here, speaks aloud, asking why is he showing it to us? They're puzzled by this permission that Azriel has given them to see his uh, latest invention. Um, now, they suspect that maybe he read their mind, that idea of theirs to propose spying, um, because, of course, they would need 
some evidence of their good faith and what better pledge or earnest than uh, this machine itself and what better way to reach the church quickly so that's the idea i think that more forcibly strikes them here if she can get there she knows all the levers of power how to manipulate them uh, it's only a matter of convincing them persuading them to allow her to now Azriel, of course, is delighted with its success. He can't wait to show off, and she asks to see how it works. He pulls her up into the cockpit, helps her into the seat, says simply, it works because of the intentions of the pilot, which is really no answer at all. But we get a few, little bit more of hand-waving at some kind of mechanism here. The helmet and the... Uh, attachment uh, of the demon uh, have a current running between them. This is amplified uh, and somehow powers the entire machine, allows it to do whatever its pilot intends. The controls are not even necessary, it seems, only the intentions of the pilot. So she thanks him, uh, pushes him out of the way, and takes off. Now, Asriel does three things. Uh, this kind of rule of three we've seen throughout the chapter comes up one last time here. He leaps up, he tells the soldiers to hold their fire, and he sends Lord Roke to go with Mrs. Coulter. She doesn't see the tiny spy vanish um, before the, the craft vanishes from sight. He is stowed away aboard. Um, the Blue Hawk stays behind. And Azriel calls her uh, Lyra's mother, after all, with rueful admiration. Um, and perhaps he did see this coming, um, because, of course, he uh, can tell exactly what she's going to do. She'll use the intention craft as an earnest of good faith, and then spy for Lord Azriel, because, as he puts it, she's tried every other sort of duplicity. This will at least be novel for her. Um but maybe that's giving her too little credit. Maybe she does really want to help Lyra and thinks this is the way to do it. Um, they expect her to go after Lyra once she finds out where she is. Um, although, as it turns out, that uh, that doesn't exactly happen. Um, Lord Roke's presence, they suppose, will be kept as a surprise, and they have a good laugh over that. Because back in the workshops, there's another, more advanced model awaiting. Now, I think Mrs. Coulter might have made a different move here if, if she really was still um, on the side of the church. Uh, she could have probably killed Azriel, his high command, brought the rebellion to a, sleeping, a, a screeching halt, actually, with the power of the intention craft if they hadn't gotten... The later prototype going quickly enough, um, she could have simply taken over uh, the situation. So Azriel really is um, trusting her quite a bit here, and he, it seems, has indeed read her right. Uh, her intentions are <clears throat> as he as he expects. So this brings us to chapter seventeen, oil and lacquer. The epigraph here could not be more crucial to Pullman's whole project, more central. It's the serpent in Genesis 3. Um, that word subtle occurs once more, um, not describing the light this time, but the serpent itself, the form, and perhaps the intentions. And the idea of the serpent has been associated uh, by the shadow particles who spoke to Mary Malone through her computer screen with, with Mary herself. Dr. Malone is to play the serpent. And so this chapter brings us back to her and what's up with her, um, her role in all of this. So she's working on making a mirror. And the narrative here uh, goes around and around this point for quite a while before it comes back to the present of her actually making 
Um, but the entire chapter is another making, not exactly a remaking this time, um, a, a creative act in its own right. Um, it has clear associations with the forging of the knife, the proving or testing of the intention craft, um, but is on a totally different scale. Um, seemingly smaller, uh, more domestic, but of course, ultimately the most important of all, uh, at least for this portion of the story. So Mary is working on a mirror, we're told not out of vanity, uh, but to test an idea of hers, to catch uh, the shadows. She has to improvise without her um, machinery, her equipment back at the lab. Um, there's no indication that anyone other than the assassin priest, Father Gomez, is following her from her own world. Uh, no one seems to go through, and perhaps it's because the specters... Um, but anyhow, the Mulefa have very little use of, for metal. Um, what they find is primarily ornamental. Uh, the example given of a copper band around one of their horns, which is a wedding ring, essentially. Uh, whereas Mary uh, has her Swiss army knife, her most valuable possession, um, kind of parallel to the subtle knife, um, which is amazing, astonishing to the Mulefa, who have never seen anything like it. Um, specifically not the knife itself, but its little magnifying glass attachment uh, delights Atal, her particular friend, um, as she uses the magnifying glass to burn a design into the white surface of a tree branch. Um, that, that blank white surface, of course, very like the paper uh, that Azriel was scribbling on, that the author is writing on, and... Um, perhaps uh, also recalling the corrosive writing uh, that William Blake uh, works into his Marriage of Heaven and Hell, and that he uses for his actual etching process. Um, now, she burns a simple daisy, but it gives her the idea of a um, scientist, million years in the future, finding this uh, work of art and seeing that it is surrounded by shadow particles, by dust. Um, the association here between sunlight, uh, heat, uh, writing, um, and having ideas uh, is all very, very intricate um, because the idea comes to her not in a spark, the way Mrs. Coulter's violent ideas come to her, but in a kind of reverie, a dream. As the Mulefa says to her, what are you dreaming? Uh, Mary explains that she's uh, been working on this uh, incredible discovery of the consciousness of matter. Um, back in her world, this came as a revelation, and uh, she has a longing to pursue this uh, uh, experimentation and, and, and discovery. Her limited language allows her to get her point across. Um, she doesn't think that the Malefa will understand them because they're so practical, and what she's saying is so mathematical. But surprisingly enough, they know exactly what she describes here. They have a word for it, very like their word for light. She can't quite hear it, um, but it's described as small ripples of light that it makes on water at sunset. It casts these bright flakes. They call this the make-like, or metaphor, this thing. And all conscious beings have it. She has it too, and that's how they knew when they met her that she was not like the grazers, but was like them, um, a person. Though she looks bizarre and horrible, the word is written sraf, uh, or sarf. Apparently it sounds like something in between, and is accompanied by a leftward flick of the trunk. So, the idea um, is surprising to her. She follows up with questions. Um, what do they know about this shroff? Where does it come from? It comes from them and from the oil, Atal says. It comes when they grow up. Without it, um, they would have no um, mature knowledge. And without the dust, the shroff, the trees would vanish. Now, this is 
uh, bringing in another factor that Mary has not um, to this point um, been aware of, that is nature's uh, interaction with human beings, with, with people, conscious beings, to produce and maintain the flow of dust. She has suspected, though, that adults and children react differently or attract different kinds of activity. Um, Lyra confirmed this with what she said about dust and what people were doing in her world. And the um, colleague of hers, Oliver Payne, uh, knows that dust began to appear in much greater volume around 33,000 years ago. Um, Mary Malone, given her background, takes this to be symbolized in the change that came about um, in the uh, Adam and Eve story, some sort of development of human consciousness um, accompanied by a temptation. Uh, again, not mentioning her role to play the tempter. Um, some uh, change in the brain that makes the human uh, brain the channel for amplifying dust. Now, that idea of amplifying, of course, is theoretically what the intention craft also is able to do. Um, Azriel all along has had an interesting relationship to dust. He somehow could take pictures of it from the very beginning of the book. Now he has used it to, of course, make his bridge between the worlds spectacularly and apparently can do just about anything he wants using the power of his mind. Again, none of, none of that is uh, satisfactorily uh, explained here. But the number 33,000 years is the next thing that shocks Mary because the Mulefa know that too. That's how long they have existed as a people. And the shock makes Atal laugh. She can read Mary's expression. And um, Mary remains serious for a change, though. How, how can they possibly know their history, their memory of uh, all that time extends ever since they became aware of Shraf? This has given them as she says, memory and wakefulness. Before they had the straff, there was nothing. And it has to do with uh, learning how to use wheels. And the story goes that there was a mulefa playing with a sea pod one day. Mary picks up on this pronoun, she, saw a snake coiling itself through the hole in the sea pod. And it spoke to her. Now, Mary picks up on this too. The snake spoke, but Atal says, of course not. It was a make-like. The question the snake asks her is, what do you know? What do you remember? What do you see ahead? So there's that theme of knowledge. And she answers nothing three times. That fairy tale uh, rule of three coming in here. The snake teaches the Mulefa to put her foot through the wheel to become wise. The oil from the seed pod uh, enters her bloodstream, we're told, and she can see clearly, meaning she can see the shraf. So what knowledge entails, first of all, is self-knowledge or, or consciousness of being aware. Uh, that kind of reflexive quality is so strange and pleasant that immediately it leads into the reflection of uh, itself in another, the relational uh, quality of sharing that knowledge with her mate and their family, their community. Now they all know who they are. They give each other names. They give names to the trees, to all the creatures, because they are different. There's this distance between them now. But it's emphatically not a fall but a inheritance, in fact, to their children to teach them how to use the seed pods and when they're old enough to ride, to help generate shraf, to plant more uh, seed pods, uh, to ride and to break them open so that the seeds can be planted, the trees can grow, and uh, they go together in this way, the mulefa and the seed pod trees. Of course, the third element in that uh, the the world itself of, of uh, the roads that allow them to do this. And so there's always this sort of uh, fundamental underlying element um, that Mary has uh, herself picked up on when she entered the world and which is implicit in the story being told. Although um, 
she doesn't understand all of it, uh, only about a quarter directly. It's by questioning. And this is an interesting um, way to tell a story, uh, to have that give and take between the teller and the audience. Um, of course, Pullman does not represent that except in a few places, like the she, the female, um, and the snake speaking. Um, the rest of the story is given more directly for us uh, to streamline matters. Um, but also, I think, to uh, allow us to see a little bit of Mary's interiority, but to mostly be caught up in the story. Uh, so she learns more about uh, dust in this little moment, this make-like or metaphor, um, than she has perhaps since speaking to Lyra or talking to the computer screen, uh, the angels, the dust in it. And she, of course, has more and more questions leading in all sorts of directions, but she holds herself to the shraf. Um, this is where the idea for the mirror comes in, because that comparison of the light on water to the way that Sraf appears to the Mulefa, the sparkling quality, makes her think of glaring off of the sea uh, being polarized. And I wonder if this idea is connected with the um, polarized uh, sunglasses. Anyway, that's where I first learned the, that, that word. So um, going to the beach and, and using sunglasses. Um, so she wonders if the shadows might be polarized in the same way. Uh, at least when light behaves like a wave, it has this quality. So... Um, she's excited, Atal is excited for her, and um, as a token of good luck, we're told, they've got three fish in their net, which they've been, of course, uh, distracted from this whole time. So, the actual process here is uh, to go to find another smaller tree, not the sap, uh, not the seed trees, but the sap trees now, boiling that sap in an alcohol... Um, giving it the consistency of milk and the color of amber. So finally get that amber uh, that's going to be the spyglass. She makes a varnish and imitates the uh, mulefa in her uh, in her work to acquire this. Um, instead of adding an oxide, she leaves it transparent um, because she's noticed that like the Iceland spar uh, stone from her world, it can split light rays uh, into double. Um, so Mary's not sure what she's doing exactly. She's got this idea, but it's a kind of play, just like in the story Atal tells, um, just uh, fooling around. And she thinks of not just um, the poet Keats, but also Lyra, who she quoted Keats too back in The Subtle Knife. Um, she gets a flat bit of wood by uh, grinding it against some sandstone. Um, it takes a lot of time and effort uh, this is a very laborious process, follows the instructions of a craftsman uh, of the Mulefa and doubles their normal amount of, of varnish to get 40 coats or so. She's lost count, uh, a thickness of about five millimeters. She spends another day polishing. Um, it's a kind of funny variation on the exhaustion of uh, Will, Lyra, and Yorick in crafting the knife um, because she's so tired. Um, that it takes yet a third day where they uh, do some work in a not uh, grove, the, the trees that they grow, I guess, for um, for tying knots, for making rope, that is. Um, and there's a kind of a moment here where um, we're reminded how special Mary is to the Mulefa in a small way, um, that she can fit into narrow gaps, that she has the doubleness of her hands. Um, and of course, that has very interesting resonance with the idea of the knife that seeks out gaps, right? She sees gaps in the Mulefa's thinking and the doubleness, um, that the polarity of light, the, the dual nature of light as a wave and particle, um, and uh, the, uh, the idea of sort of self-reflection, which is uh, present in the mirror. All of that, I think, is, is implicit in this little mention of her helping them with their daily work. But after the work is done, then she gets to experiment, to play as she thinks. Um, she doesn't know what she's doing. In a contrast to Yorick demanding that they know what it is, um, she doesn't exactly know what it is she's doing. Um, and that, again, is the Keats' negative capability of, of poetry and Lyra's mode of reading the alethiometer. Um, she does have a teacher here, though, um, and she isn't, uh, she's not in a hurry or anything. Um, she decides she needs to get a clearer uh, look 
um, by by breaking the wood off of the lacquer. So she cuts it away with her knife, taking great care. Um, she thinks about softening what's left in water, but the master tells her that there's a, an acid, a liquid in a stone bowl. Um, comes from uh, minerals uh, at, a, at a dry lake area she hasn't visited. So whenever we need something in the story, it seems like we're, we're able to just sort of get it. Um, and that's very pat, but also very nice for not pulling us out of the story, unless, of course, it stretches our credulity too much. So anyhow, we move along briskly um, until we're left with the varnish, which is about the size of a page from a paperback book. There's the paper, the book, uh, used again as simply a, a make, like a metaphor simile here. Of course, it's uh, no longer just a mirror, but um, a, a way, uh, a translucent sort of glass to see through. And that, of course, is very like the windows between worlds. What she sees is this world, though. Uh, nothing special yet, just a double image. So she thinks that maybe if she breaks this into two pieces, then that double image will resolve itself into a single one again. And so she tries that, scoring it with her knife. There's the knife again. Um, again, using something she saw a glazier do in her world once. She pushes sharply. Once it's scored deeply enough and neatly breaks it, now she's got two that she can hold apart. At about a hand span apart, she makes a small discovery. The amber color sort of cancels itself out. The doubleness is, uh, of course, gone. And everything appears brighter, more vivid. And that distance, again, uh, reminds me of a, a very uh, gentle form uh, of the fall story, uh, introducing a separation or distance. Um, now, Atal is curious about what she's able to see. No shraf yet, but she's seeing other things. But it's a polite curiosity or interest, not that powerful sense of discovery um, that's animating Mary. Uh, and Mary senses that Atal really just wants to spend time with her. Um, their connection here is really interesting because they're, of course, um, in some ways... Uh, a pair themselves, um, Mary and Atal. Uh, Mary doesn't have a visible demon, nor does the Mulefa. Um, they're like the spies. Uh, they're like Will and Lyra, or say uh, Azriel and Mrs. Coulter. Actually, they're they're kind of a a, a friend, a friendship, a very close one, um, with some uh, implications that there's uh, a kind of longing for something more here. Um, not exactly a romance between the two of them, but perhaps a, a, a romantic connection of some kind. Atal is of the age to be married, but there's no males in her uh, community, so she's going to have to uh, wait for one from outside. This is apparently rather difficult. Um, and so the kind of uh, touch and caress of Mary's hands on her uh, uh, seed pod riding foot um, and her trunk on Mary's hair is rather sensual here and um, more more than friendly, I think. Um, they they uh, lead to, the, these physical touches lead to Mary's discovery. And so there's that um, implication of, of a kind of Freudian or, or sexual image of the snake in the wheel, um, the touch between these two, and... Um, the, the oil, of course, the, the lubricant uh, that leads to Mary's revelation. Because when she touches her lacquer again, after having oil on her fingers, in the places where the oil touches, she's able to see a swarm of golden sparkles when it's at that exact distance of a hand span or so. Um, that, that separation, uh, that longing, uh, that vision all, all sort of come together there. Um, and Philip Pullman's wonderful make-like uh, of this story. So we've got the materials of uh, what's going to be the amber spyglass. And Mary has made the connection. She's figured it out. She calls a tall back, rubs more oil over all of the uh, lacquer, and is able to see how beautiful it is. This is what uh, is most wonderful to her. And Atal says, of course, it was beautiful. It was strange she couldn't see it. Um, again, this idea that there's a world, uh, another world, more than that which is seen with the naked eye. Um, so an overlay of different worlds within this very same one. 
we're traveling to a new world, not by going through with the knife, not that violent image, but with a much more uh, gentle, loving uh, kind of uh, play. Um, and, and it's a beautiful variation on, on that concept here. The first thing that Atal bids her look at is the little one, right? A, a small mulefa who is so distracted by all of uh, its uh, ants and all of its little bits of grass and stick, uh, hooting, um, uh, running after its mother. Whereas the mother, when she looks, has a golden haze, uh, much stronger uh, surrounding her. The child was only a little stronger than that around shelters, nets, or fires, things that are made, things that have intention and care put into them. Whereas the mother, of course, is the caregiver. Um, she's doing something, making uh, food, uh, something like chapati or tortilla. Um, she is the very picture of responsibility and wise care, uh, words that, that mean a lot uh, in Pullman's understanding, I think. Um, and so, again, the story moves very briskly at this point. Um, somehow, uh, all of the Mulefa know that Mary has made this great discovery. At last, it's time. Um, there's a tone in Atal's voice of, of being finally ready, of, of now things are going to change. Um, so there's, there's a kind of turning point, very like the fall, uh, this moment of no return. But of course, this is a happy fall, a happy discovery, and um, it is uh, not a, a, a dystopia um, breaking in at this point. Pullman sort of invites that. Um, it's very disconcerting how all these strangers are suddenly appearing. They look in Mary's direction curiously. The low kind of sound of their wheels on the on the earth um, is, is steady uh, kind of vibe. Um, but Atal tells her not to worry. They won't hurt her. It's as if they've had this meeting long planned at this location of a low mound of packed earth. Again, ramps for the, the wheeled creatures. Um, it's reminiscent a bit of the the roping of the Egyptians back at the um, the marshes in Lyra's world. Um, and there's a kind of similar uh, sunset quality to it. The crowds, um, that gold of the setting sun, comfortable smells, an oil and horse-like sweet smell um, that, that sort of set us at ease if we, if we weren't sure uh, if this was okay. Um, Atal is not going to speak, but Satamax, a, a new character here, a kind of John Fa or Fodder Quorum of the Mulefa. He's old, he's arthritic, he moves slowly, and others move with care around him because when Mary looks through her glass, she sees his shadow cloud, rich and complex, uh, inspiring respect, even though she knows so little about what it means. The uh, simile here is that she's like a new girl at school. Um, the movements of the others, their speech is graceful, whereas she, of course, is just learning the language. Um, she understands that they're greeting her, they're grateful for her presence, they've waited until she can understand them, and until she had this other thing, the shraf, the ability to see it. She's made an instrument to do so. Somehow they know this, right? Um, it's unclear. Maybe the Mulefa not only can see Shraf, but can manipulate it in some way to communicate it across distances. I don't know. I don't know. This is uh, only speculative here. Um, I think it's more likely this is simply uh, a convenience of the story, much like the movements of Mrs. Coulter uh, that we've noticed all along. Sort of when we need something, it appears, sure enough, um, and uh, that's that's okay. Um, I don't I don't mind that, although some readers might be put off by it. Now, now that Mary has understood a little of their language and seen the shraf, then it's time for her to, she must do to help them, as he says. Now, she speaks awkwardly, but uh, expresses her gratitude in turn and for their hostility, for their kindness. Uh, she says a bit about her world being different, but that some are aware of dust. Uh, she, of course, um, has uh, just explained this to Atal, so somehow they seem to have known this, um, to have put their, their hopes in her. But um, 
Sadamax explains that their world is in danger. They will not survive because of the Tuolapi and because something has gone wrong with the world. This kind of uh, the old being concerned uh, on behalf of the young that, that we saw way back in Jordan College uh, is, is recapitulated here in a way. Um, but more to the point, that number 33,000 years of history comes up again and another. The 300 years, the key moment being, of course, the creation of the subtle knife, whether that's the cause or simply a symptom of something that happened around the time of our Reformation and, and Renaissance and scientific enlightenment. Um, uh, Pullman is, is clearly alluding to that most recent major transition in human society, if not human evolution per se. Um, that, that something has gone wrong. The trees have sickened and many have died. Uh, the Tuolapi's numbers have grown and, and the mulefas and the trees have not kept pace. Um, this is something their memory could find no cause for. They have no story to account for this. They have no ability to cope with the change, apparently, because their process and rhythm of life is slow. They only know this because of Mary. They see her like a butterfly or a bird, swiftly, instantly seeing a solution to a problem that they've never faced, uh, to see Shraf, she immediately acquires the ability with materials they've known all along, these dark materials, we might say, um, that she makes bright. And, uh, and beside the uh, Mulefa, she is bird-like in her swiftness. Now, uh, this is funny for a number of reasons. It's, I think, clearly uh, making me at least think of the Ents uh, in the two towers, their their slowness, um, their different language, of course, also. Um, but also, I, th I think of um, the uh, way that Mary sees herself so differently. Um, she she sees herself as uh, plodding, dogged, not uh, beautiful, bird-like or, or butterfly-like. But of course, we'll learn at the end that her bird, or her demon, is a bird. Um, uh, she she is in some way bird-like that this part of her nature that she wasn't able to see um, so they have hope because her ability to see connections and possibilities uh, of things invisible to the Mulefa as Shraf was invisible to her although of course now it is not um, it's uh, difficult to say whether a thing is invisible to you until you uh, actually know about it um, but uh, Equally, this idea of a certain amount of distance and um, a, a kind of challenge that enables play and experimentation and learning uh, to make those possible at all um, seems to be an advantage Mary actually has. Um, she has fresh vision uh, where the Mulefa have their, um, their great memory, um, their customs. Uh, the bears similarly have that, that power of custom but um, but also uh, a kind of inventiveness. Um, they uh, expect, hope, that she will invent ways to deal with the Tuolapi and find a cure for the trees. Um, so this unprecedented thing, they can at least imagine, uh, and they will do whatever they can to help her. She, in turn, says that she appreciates their trust and will do her best, will try everything that she can to uh, preserve their life, which is good. And um, now that she has seen Shraf, she says she knows what it is that she can, that she must do. Um, so again, echoing that idea, not just of intention and its relationship to making and craftsmanship, um, but also that idea of knowledge uh, from the forging of the knife, the remaking of the knife. Um, that very phrase, know what it is, uh, comes in here. But of course, it's a bit uh, sanguine on her part. She doesn't really know. Um, she's daunted, but she has to live up to their confidence in her, she thinks. The closing bit of this chapter very briefly uh, lets us know that Father Gomez is still on uh, the prowl, still coming after Mary. He reaches the point in Chittagatsi where the old couple live among the olive trees, um, that point at which we picked up with Mary shortly before she found the window into the world of the Mulefa. And um, it apparently is happening at that very moment. So time is flowing rather 
differently in the different portions of the story that we're reading. Uh, I think it's clear um, to give any physical possibility of the movement of all these pieces. Pullman is having to play a bit loose with his chronology as usual. Um, the foreboding sense comes back rather strongly here. Um, what Father Gomez uh, might do to these old people living uh, so remotely uh, is is frightening, I think, to the reader. Um, and what he might do, of course, to Mary uh, down the line. Uh, and in in this small way, again, we have this um, sense of, of decline, of diminishment, of dying light, um, the setting sun, the evening light, uh, and the sense that time is on the side of Father Gomez, or at least he thinks so. Um, again, Pullman's sense of history coming out here a bit, um, his belief in individuals and communities uh, being able to overcome a general downward darkening uh, thrust of, uh, of history. Um, it, it's an interesting tension and one that we should uh, try to keep an eye out for as we go along here. Um, we are, of course, descending uh, to the very uh, deepest and darkest parts of the story. Um, and uh, I, I appreciate you following along, and I'll try to keep the momentum going uh, on releasing uh, further episodes to bring us through the uh, the handspan, the uh, paperback book-sized amber spyglass. Thanks again. Take care. <laughs>